Well, we are in a series called Invited, Loved, Transformed. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for a while now and seeing just how amazing Jesus is. We're in John 13 today. So turn with me in a Bible. John 13 and verse 31. If you have my Bible, that's page 102. Uh, John 13, verse 31. And uh, yeah, we're going to continue hearing more about uh, what Jesus calls us to be. John 13, 31. When he, oh, actually, no, we're going to start at verse 33. Uh Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are called to be obvious lovers. Obvious lovers. Christianity basically teaches two things. How much God loves us. And that everything we do is a response to God's love. Again, how much God loves us. By which I don't mean the church and the Christians, but humans. That everything we do, good or bad, is a response to God's love. When it comes to God's love for us, uh, the Bible makes it really clear, obvious, just how much God loves us. I mean, there's story after 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 story of God's patience, right? His mercy, his goodness, his generosity, his faithfulness, his graciousness, his commitment, his kindness. God's love for us. And the amazing thing is, as you read this book, you find that these aren't God's favorite people or remarkable people. These are just people, people like you and like me. And that Actually, you and I are invited into this story you know, to become new chapters in it, that we would write in the 21st century what it looks like to be loved by God and to let that make a real impact on our lives. It's incredible. And that's the one thing we think we understand about Christianity. Like, that's it. Like, I know that God loves me. So what else? And the thing is, we don't understand that. That's the one thing that we're never going to understand about Christian because it goes so deep and so wide and so high and so far. We just, it, we're like kindergartners who've learned a couple of letters and think that we've mastered the English language. Even if we learn the rest of the alphabet, there's still every book written on Amazon. Even if we read a couple of those books, we're never going to make a dent in that. That's what the love of God is like. It just goes further than we could possibly imagine. And we see that so clearly at the cross. And those of us who've really seen the cross for what it is, our lives will never be the same. Everything that we do for the rest of our lives is a reaction to God's love that came so much, it came before we even existed. And so when we walk our dog and when we pay our taxes and when we worship him or not, or love him or not, or love one another or not, all of this is either a rejection of God's love or allowing ourselves to be embraced by the love of God. And that's really important language. It's not that you and I are doing really badly at following Jesus or doing really well at following Jesus. It has much more to do with whether or not we've allowed the love of God to envelop us, to surround us, to fill us. Because when that happens, you find that you're just following Jesus. The more connected you are to the love of God in Jesus Christ, connected to what God has done at the cross, 
the easier it becomes to love one another as I have loved you. That's key. We've been loved by Jesus, and that's what empowers us to love like Jesus. Tom Wright, in a little commentary he wrote on the Gospel of John, uh, says that it's here that Jesus really begins his farewell discourse, his goodbye, the long goodbye, several chapters in the Gospel of John. Right after Judas leaves the room, we get some of the most intimate language about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and some of the deepest theology in the Gospel of John. And Tom Wright would say that that's no accident, that where there's deep thinking, there's deep loving. And often where there's shallow thinking, there is shallow loving. The closer we are to this love of Jesus Christ, the easier it becomes to love one another because that the love of Jesus sort of shines uh, within us. So when, we, when we're good at this, it's really that we've just connected so deeply with the love of Jesus. And when we're bad at this, we see that it's really difficult to love people around us. The solution is not to try harder to love people around us. It's to return to the cross, to return to the love of Jesus again and again and again. John has clearly thought deeply about this. Not just because of the gospel, but because he wrote some letters that we have in the Bible. And he riffs on this theme over and over. It's really repetitive, actually, when you read John. How much he's just trying to drive it into your heads, in my head, that God loves me, that God loves you. We love because he first loved us. This is First John. Beloved, nobody can say they hate the brother and they love God. Those are mutually exclusive ideas. Let us love in truth and action because we become children of God through the love of God. Bernard of Clairvaux in his commentary on the Song of Songs says that a lot of people, when we look at the Christian life, we think of it as like a canal. Right? The spiritual truth just flies through us to other people. Or that the love of God just flies through us to other people. It's, it's a bad image. He says we're, we're like reservoirs. We want to be filled so that we can overflow. We want to be cut deep and wide and just take in as much of the love of God as we possibly can so that we you know, open the gates, we just unleash this tidal wave on the people around us. They find that we have this rich, deep love that does not come from ourselves, but it comes from the cross of Jesus Christ, that you and I would remember how much Jesus loves us, that we would be more and more connected to how much Jesus loves us and still to know that people spend lifetimes a lifetime, trying to discover this and understand this and walk into this and experience this, and they still don't really understand it. It will never really plumb the depths of God's love for us. And that's what the cross is all about. The place where we see that God pays the ultimate price for us. That he loved you so much that he would die for you. And that's the kind of thing that we hear and then we kind of forget a little bit and then we remember and we forget a little bit. Uh, when Sam, our youngest son, um, about a year ago, actually, some of you don't know this, Sam almost died um, shortly after he was born. And he was in the ICU for about a week, and then he was in the hospital for about a week. And it's just this really powerful experience in my life uh, to wonder whether or not my son would live. And the day we left the hospital was an incredible day. <laughs> an incredible day in our lives. Our son, who almost died, was alive. And I will tell you, My wife could not annoy me that day. My children could not annoy me that day. Sam could not annoy me that day. Traffic, which I often find extraordinarily frustrating, was like, this is petty. Fine, cut me off. Who cares? Like, my son is alive. This incredible thing. What a gift I've been given. And after a while, that fades. And then your kid's annoying again. And then your wife's annoying again. And traffic's really annoying again. And every now and again, I drive past that hospital because it's near my house. And I remember what it's like. And I find that I'm a little bit more gracious that day because I suddenly remember just how good things are for me. That's what it's like when we look at the cross. 
Again and again and again, we go, you know what? A lot of the stuff in my life, when it gets put in this crazy eternal perspective, when I see just how much I've been loved by Jesus, it changes the way I move and I love in the world. And there are three things, I think, that get in the way of this new command that Jesus gives us. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are at least three things I've struggled with. You might have others. Um, three temptations, and we'll call them the temptation to worship, and the temptation uh, to choose who you love, and the temptation uh, to be right. Um, Jesus says, I give you this new command. This new command I give you, and it's not new. If you've read this book, it's an extremely old command. It's all over the place, and it's really repetitive. He's going to say it again and again and again, actually, even in the Gospel of John. So it's not new in the sense that we've never heard it before. It's new in the language of Raymond Brown. It's new in the sense that it's empowered by the love of Jesus and that it's modeled on the love of Jesus. That's what's new about this, that we see love the way it's actually supposed to work in Jesus and we gain a power to love because we're so connected to Jesus. Uh, that you would love one another just as I have loved you, it says in verse 34. Uh, that just as, it's a preposition in Greek and it's, it tends to be comparative, right? That we would love like someone else loves, kind of an equal sign. The way Jesus loves equals the way I am called to love, which means that you and I, we would live our lives in such a way that we would treat our lives as though they don't matter. We would treat our money as though it doesn't matter, our safety and our security as though it doesn't matter, as though other people, even people who wrong us, maybe especially people who have really hurt us, that those are the people that we would happily sacrifice for, that we would love deeply and dearly. And of course, the problem with this is that you and I are never going to love the way Jesus loves because he's just way too good at it. We've seen this again and again and again. And so it's really nice to hear that that, that preposition also can, it can refer to source. And so a legitimate translation for this verse might actually be that you would love one another from the love that I've loved you. That our love would come from Christ's love. And so again, we find that we have this deep well, this reservoir from which to love other folks, and it's not ours. Which is really really important because Jesus was just so obviously good at loving us and we want to become like Jesus in that way and so the better we are at loving it really has so much to do with how connected we are to the love of Jesus Christ so those temptations that get in the way uh, the temptation to worship worship uh, it was kind of misleading, maybe, the way I'm saying that. So I'm going to give a disclaimer. It is good for Christians to get together and do Christian things in a Christian way. It is good for us to get together and sing praise to God and talk about what God has done and really acknowledge the fact that we're Christians and we want to do life in community. It is good to get together in the course of a week and encourage one another and love one another and, and really sharpen one another. Those are good things. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about bad worship. A lot of time talking about bad worship. Uh, prophets spend a lot of time on this. And this is not to say that um, we're worshiping the wrong God. That's idolatry. That's a different kind of bad worship. There's such a thing as worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And so the prophets in the Old Testament spend a lot of time saying again and again and again, look, you, you guys are doing the best you can, but you seem, to be, you seem to think that I want really pious religious people, and what I'm looking for are people who you know, do what I say, like justice for orphans and mercy out there in the world. Jesus will quote this again and again from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. James in his book will say, look, there's bad religion and there's good religion. Good religion looks like care for widows and orphans. When you worship God, you become like him and God cares really deeply about the poor. 
Paul in a book called the the First Corinthians. Uh, we'll say, look, I mean, it's great that you're spiritual people. It's great that you've had spiritual experiences. But at the end of the day, right, if we don't love people, like, what's the point? What's the point of being religious in a way that doesn't really impact the world around us? Jesus says something really remarkable here, that you would love one another as I have loved you. That's how people will know that you're my disciples. Not by your love for me, but by your love for one another. Not by your religious devotion to the God that you serve, but by your devotion to one another. That's an amazing thing. You would think that a religion would be all about worshiping the God that we talk about, and the God that we talk about says, no, I want you to be out there in the world loving the people that I love. That's how people are going to know that you love me, by the way that you love one another. The church, when I grew up, and this was probably true for you, it's still true even now, the church in America really loved the idea of being a different thing than the rest of the world. So we, we built kind of a Christian world, a Christian bubble. We had our own schools. Uh, we, we had our own newspapers and magazines. We had our own radio stations and uh, music labels and music. We had our own politicians. We had a lot of things that were just very Christian things. And the idea was, you know, that, that you could kind of live this life apart from the world, where you'd never really get messy and dirty, you know, along with those messy and broken people out there in the world. And I had friends who would brag about how they'd only listen to Christian music and never secular music. Uh, friends who, you know, I would never send my kids to, you know, public school. We only send them to Christian schools. And there's some good impulse behind this. I'm not slamming the whole thing. But the message the world got loud and clear was, we want nothing to do with you. And the message the church got loud and clear was, we want nothing to do with them. And that's not the church of Jesus Christ. That doesn't look, that doesn't look anything like this. That you would love one another as I have loved you that we would be out in the world among people who really need the gospel. The, the church has this, the Christian life really has this kind of constant sort of cyclical movement or maybe like ping pong, uh, that when we get converted, when we become Christians, we move away from the world. All these things that have oppressed us and really brought brokenness into our lives, the people in our lives who are bad influences, we walk away from all of that, we walk into the church and we come to know Jesus. We come to see what it's like to be in Christian community. It's great and it's wonderful and it's powerful and it changes us. And the more we worship this God, the more we realize we're being sent right back out into those same places that we just got saved from. That we would, in fact, go love all those people who are terrible influences in our lives. That we would, in fact, go into those places of brokenness and pain and oppression because we understand them better than anybody else. We know how desperately those people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when we go out there, we go, oh no, I don't have the resources to solve all these problems. I am in desperate need of the love of Jesus Christ. And then we go running right back to Jesus. We go running right back to the church and the community and to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross. And then immediately we get sent right back out into the world. And so we're constantly moving in this way, bouncing back and forth in this way. That's what it looks like to really worship the God that we're talking about, that we would love one another as I have loved you. There's a woman named Mother Marie of Paris, uh, who says this, it would be a great lie to tell those who are searching, go to church because there you will find peace. The opposite is true. The church tells those who are at peace and asleep, go to church because there you will feel real anguish for your sin and the world's sin. There you will feel an insatiable hunger for Christ's truth. There, instead of becoming lukewarm, you will be set on fire. That's what we believe. That you and I would become people, not who try to hide away from the world, but who really try to love the world the way that we've been loved. Brant Hansen, uh, in this book, tells a story about a friend of his named Michael, who bought a building 
The local paper wrote about him and his wife and their purchase of one of the most significant buildings in the downtown area, as well as their evangelical plans for the coffee house. I winced when I saw the article. I had other friends in that neighborhood and knew none of them would welcome this development. In fact, before Michael bought the building, it had hosted the community's biggest arts events of the year. It was an exhibition to benefit AIDS, and it featured local art, some of which was intentionally very transgressive. We could see the culture war coming. One of the exhibit organizers saw Michael on the street and asked how things were going with the remodeling of the building. He mentioned, of course, that they were looking for a new place to host their event. And Michael said, oh, no, no, we would love to host that event. Oh, yeah, but I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to pay you. Oh, no, no, we'd like to do it for free. In fact, I'd like to cater it for you. Can, can we bring hors d'oeuvres? Uh, well, that's, that's very generous, but, you know, that, it's, not Christian, it's not Christian art. I mean, we, we wouldn't, I mean you'd, some of it would be offensive. That's all right. He told the event organizers he didn't need to appreciate all the art. He just wanted to make them feel at home. Instead of being evicted by Christians for the best location for the exhibit, the artists were welcomed. That was Michael's style. He hugged everybody. He talked freely about Jesus. People didn't mind. He said he just talked to people about the goodness of God because he knew deep down people were longing for a God like that. An acquaintance of ours who ran a business nearby was open about her distaste for Christians and her love of Wicca. But she loved Michael, would listen to him talk about Jesus. She said she knew he was different because when she dropped by his coffee shop in all black, he would run out and hug her. Obvious lovers. That we are called to be obvious lovers means that we cannot run away from what we are called to love. Because Jesus didn't. Jesus walked down into a messy, broken, and dark world because he loved us. Because he loves the people that we are called to love. Second temptation, to choose who we get to love. That you would love one another, right? Jesus doesn't say that you would love a couple of people who you already would like anyway, and that you would do life together in community with them, right? That's, that's not what the church is. But I will tell you that there have been times in my life, seasons in my life, when I've said, well, you know, the local church is just obnoxious. And you know, when they figure out, you know, how to, when they get their stuff together, then maybe I will, I will join them. But right now, I've got these Christian friends. We do life together. We do ministry together. We're in community. That's the church, right? That's what the church is, really, in the Bible. Turns out, no, that's not what the church is, really, in the Bible. Um, I read the Bible over and over again and found that the church looks very little like what I thought the church um, was. And that God loves the local institutional organizational church, has one of the is one of the biggest surprises in my following of Jesus. And here's why. I don't get to choose who's a member. I don't choose who's part of the local church. The people Jesus is talking about, right, that you would love one another, this is a group of people chosen by Jesus. There's a terrorist. There's a guy who loves the status quo. There are a couple of people who are just crazy poor, a couple of people who are wealthy, some people who are really intellectual, some people who are not at all intellectual. This is the group that Jesus chose we talked about these people earlier in this series. These people become the church. The church, which in the book of Acts has a lot of trouble with racism, a lot of trouble with ageism, a lot of trouble with you know, kind of well, classism. And the Holy Spirit again and again and again and again and again reminds the people that they are supposed to love one another as they have been loved. The church is something that God draws together and it doesn't really look like the community of people that I would naturally associate with. And that's kind of the point of the church. The church is a community of people that is brought together by the cross of Jesus Christ, something which by its very nature crosses any and every boundary and unites us regardless of what we look like, regardless of what we act like. 
So we don't get to choose the church. We don't get to choose our community. The community has been chosen for us by the grace of Jesus Christ. We just come and try to love one another the way we've been loved. It's really important, if, you, if you're wondering if this is really true, um, these verses, it would be easier to make the case that Jesus is talking about Christians loving Christians than that he's talking about loving the world. I think he's talking about loving the world, but he's definitely talking about how Christians need to love Christians. And this is really important, because you and I have a lot of trouble loving Christians. Because when you look at people who really don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're like, well, yeah. But when you look at the Christians, you're like, man, can you guys just get it together for once? Right, when we see people on the news, oh, gosh, I really don't want to be associated with those. And people are like, you know, that guy said this, and you're like, he's probably not a real Christian. And then we, when we say those words, we're like, I'm not sure that was a good thing to say, but it makes me feel better, because then they understand, like, we're, we're not the same. But then the world around us starts to see that you and I actually are pretty bad at loving one another the way that we've been loved. The early church was good at loving one another. They made a lot of mistakes, but they were good at loving one another. Pagans noticed. We have writings written by non-Christians that said things like, you know, they're idiots and they're weirdos and we don't really want to be a part of them. But look how they love one another. They really have something going for them. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian. He says, in John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love to other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that they are not a true Christian. Here, Jesus is stating something which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of Christianity. People will not believe us, what we say about God, if we don't love one another. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers, but after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave, is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples. You would love one another as I have loved you. There's a Bible study I know in town. A couple of guys uh, get together. A um, few in their 70s, uh, black and white, uh, southern guys. And there's an 18-year-old kid who's Latino and just came to know Jesus. I'm pretty pumped. And when he shows up to Bible study, he has a tendency to cuss a lot because he's really excited about Jesus. And he's, he's you know, God's still kind of working in him. And he's, you know, but he's, you love Jesus, man. And you're like, yeah, man, that's okay. Yeah. Um, and he, he offends these Southern guys, but, they, you know, they're, they're figuring stuff out. There are a couple of dudes who are just super liberal in this Bible study. And they, they want to follow Jesus, but they also really want to, they, they want Bernie's revolution to happen. <laughs> And they're, they're trying to decide which, which side they're on. There are a couple of guys who are just kind of conservative and suburban and fairly wealthy, and they, you know, they, they want to follow Jesus, but they also kind of like the life they've built for themselves. And these guys, my friend says, we get together in coffee shops, and we'll walk in, and the baristas are, like, trying to figure it out. Like, you just see them, like, what are you all doing together? Like, that's doesn't, and, like, other people in the coffee shop, like, pretty consistently, just, what is this group of people? Like, this, this group of people does not make sense with each other, and he says, that's, that's what the church is supposed to be, obvious lovers. Third temptation, the temptation to be right. Anybody love to be right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it feels so good. I love to be right. Those of us, oh, man, it's just those of us who are, like, logical or who have an ego, mm, ego, yeah, it feels so good to win in an argument. And let me tell you something. If you love to be right, you are going to struggle to love one another. You can only love one thing 
there. You will love being right or you will love one another. I can tell you this is true in marriage. Uh, you can feel right and you can want to win and beat the other person into just admitting that you're right or you can let it go. It's up to you, but I tell you, the people who get divorced young or really who get divorced at any age, they love being right. And in families where you see like lots of real division, like that lasts for a really long time, people just separated about some fight from somewhere, somewhere back in the past. People love being right. They're not so interested in loving one another. If you want to be a terrible evangelist, love being right. Love being right. You'll talk to sinners who are wrong. They're wrong about so many things. Oh, it'll feel so good. You'll be so right. But they'll know the difference. They can tell the difference between people who love them and who love being right. They have very little interest in people who love being right. The church in America, lately, seems to love being right. We want to make laws about how right we are. We want to, inst- we want to put things into a constant that people would understand that we are right. And it's hard to watch sometimes. And the world outside, they definitely understand we love being right. We don't love you. That's, that's the most important thing to us. And the solution for you and me is not to be people who stand at the side and say, See, the church is wrong. I'm right. I got it. And it feels really good, but I'm, I'm the real Christian. I've, I've solved this problem, and, th- and those guys are wrong, and it's going to make me feel really good to talk about how wrong they are. And as we talk about even some of these, these temptations, right, the idea of Christians who run away from the world, you're like, those guys. That's, that's why I don't like Christians. I don't like Christians like that. I don't want to be, a, I want to hang out with these people over here. That we would be people who love well. That we would love one another. That we would love the world out there. That we would love well, that we would be obvious lovers. There's this story I love in the history of the church. It's one of my favorites. There's a guy named Nanus. This is over a thousand years ago. He's one of the desert fathers. Wandered out into the desert. Was a monk. This was a thing that Christians did for a while. They would go out into the desert. They'd be all alone. They'd be hermits. They'd talk to no one. Because, you know, all these other normal people will kind of ruin your Christianity. And so they'd go out and they'd fast and they'd pray. And they'd fast for decades. They'd just be alone in the desert. And the closer he got to God, the more he realized God wanted him to love his neighbor, and he left his neighbor back in the city. And so he came back to the city, and it turned out that this guy had just sort of just been filled with the love of Jesus in some really remarkable ways. People saw it in him, and, and they wanted him to be a bishop. So he became a bishop really quickly. And they wanted him to speak at this kind of conference of bishops in a pagan city. And so he comes to this conference of bishops, and the guy who's sort of in charge of the city is leading everybody around on a tour. And they're going on a tour, and they're seeing some stuff, and all of a sudden, a famous prostitute named Pelagia, comes riding through town. She's on a horse. She's nude from the waist up, mostly nude from the waist down, covered in jewelry and gold that she has definitely gotten by being paid for sex. There are other prostitutes with her. There are people clapping. There are tambourines and trumpets. Admirers are coming out because they're giving away gifts. It is a parade of sin, a literal sin parade. And the bishops are just mortified. And the guy leading the tour is mortified, and everybody kind of closes their eyes. Except Nanus, who's just like, I have never seen anything like this before. <laughs> and the other bishops, they open their eyes, and they see that Nanus hasn't closed his, and they're sort of embarrassed for him. And he says, did you see that? Awkward, <laughs> awkward silence, kind of chuckle. Did you see that? He says again, brothers, did you see how beautiful she was? I thought she was beautiful. How much time do you think she spends? adorning herself for her lovers. And we have the ultimate lover. We let ourselves lie so neglected. Pelagia heard about this. 
So she came to hear the man speak. Heard him talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heard him talk about the danger of those who don't repent. She wrote him a letter. To the holy disciple of Christ from Pelagia, chief of sinners. I have heard of your God. How he bent the heavens and came down. Down to earth, not for the righteous, but for the salvation of sinners. I am an ocean of sin. But through you, I may deserve to see his face. I wish to be baptized. She became a nun. Obvious lovers. That we would be obvious lovers. And there's so many things that get in the way, that threaten us, that tempt us to walk away from love. Love is hard. But that we would learn to love the way that Jesus loves. That's how people will know that we follow him. That's how we'll know that we follow him. The closer we are, the more connected we become to the love of Jesus Christ, the more we will become obvious lovers. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We pray that it would fill us, oh God, even right now, that we would be overwhelmed by it, that you would show us faces and names of people in our lives that we need to love without agenda, not because we want them to be Christians or because we want them to apologize, but just because we want to love them. God, that we would be obvious lovers, that I would be an obvious lover, that we would give up being right, give up our desire to run away from the world, (sighs) give up that stupid human thing of trying to decide who we love and who we don't have to love. And we would turn our eyes to you because you're an obvious lover. In the name of Jesus, amen.